Hi, Salima here, and it's time to put your money where your media is. Please support Making Contact and click the donate button at radioproject.org. Please help us produce our people-powered radio at radioproject.org. Thank you, and here's the show. You're listening to Making Contact. Hi, I'm Salima Hamarani, and today we're going to look at a really big volcano eruption that happened in Guatemala. In the summer, there were actually two really big eruptions. And you might have heard about one, the eruption in Hawaii, because it was all over the news. But you might not have heard about the eruption in Guatemala of a volcano called Fuego, which means fire. That eruption killed thousands of people, mostly poor, indigenous people living on the slopes of the volcano. It didn't get a lot of coverage, but the effects of that disaster still haunt Guatemala, and the victims are still trying to put their lives back together. Our special correspondent, Maria Martin, was in Guatemala during the eruption, and she brings us this report. When one lives in Guatemala, as I have for most of the last decade, one comes to terms with living in the shadow of volcanoes. There are more than three dozen in this country, although only a few are active. Extintos si no han tenido erupción en miles de años, durmientes en caso de inactividad temporal, y activos cuando arrojan regularmente humo y lava. Some time ago, I wrote about why I lived in Guatemala. Looking back, I believe part of that decision had to do with the mysterious and almost magical spectacle of these geological giants, known in Spanish as volcanes. I live in Guatemala because each day I wake up and see the volcano called Agua out my window. As the day goes on, the volcano changes before my eyes. First, it's clear against a blue sky. Then the clouds roll in, and I only see the top of the cone. Then it's totally covered by mist and clouds. By evening, it may reappear. It's almost like a point of focus for meditation, a lesson in mindfulness as I watch the volcano out the picture window facing the desk where I work. From my upstairs window, I can also see another volcano, the one called Fuego. The Mayas called it fire. El Coloso está ubicado en el anillo de fuego del Pacífico, el área con mayor actividad sísmica del planeta. En total, as this Guatemalan TV report tells us, Fuego is one of the most active volcanoes in Guatemala and Central America. Sixty of its eruptions have been recorded since 1524, the last major one in 1973. And despite past volcanic activity, Fuego, located in the south-central part of the country, still surprised most Guatemalans with its deadly eruption on the afternoon of Sunday, June 3rd of 2018. A brilliant flash of fire and a plume of smoke blocking out the sun. Torrents of lava barreling down the mountainside as fast as 100 miles per hour at temperatures of up to 1,300 degrees Fahrenheit. In an instant, towns, roads, and trees completely engulfed by a searing hot, lethal cloud. 
almost two million Guatemalans were affected by Fuego's eruption that day. Areas once vibrant and alive, now frozen by the ash. The thousands of people living in the aldeas and villages on the skirts of the volcano lost much more with the destruction of Fuego than their crops of corn and beans and vegetables. We'll meet some of them coming up. The truth is, the only thing left of that Sunday is grief and tears. That day, the people closest to me, my daughter, my grandparents, my family, they all perished that day. Twenty-three-year-old Mildred Morales of the community of Las Lajas was just one of those who'd become accustomed to living with majestic volcanic views and with, as it turned out, their much more dangerous proximity to fuego. It all began around noon when it started to get really dark and cloudy. People said that the volcano was erupting, but we never imagined it would be that much to be concerned about. It had started out like any other Sunday afternoon in Guatemala, times when families come together to share cooking and a meal, to visit and relax after a week of hard work. Most of Mildred's family had gathered at their humble home. The children were outside playing. Just as Volcan Fuego began its strongest eruption in more than 45 years. All Mildred could think about were the beloved daughters the young single mother called her princesses, six-year-old Mildred Joseva and her three-year-old sister, Jennifer Andrea. And I said, I have to go get my daughters, but the officials wouldn't let me pass. I begged them to let me go get them, but they stopped me. And that was when the lava flow came to where my daughters were running with my sister. Sadly, they weren't able to get out. Finally, says Mildred, the emergency officials allowed villagers to get closer to where the pyroclastic flows had come rushing down. The rapidly running boiling flow of lava, water, and debris had taken everything in its wake. When they finally told us that we could enter that area, it didn't do any good. You couldn't do anything for them. Their bodies were on the ground. All you could do was pick up their cadavers. If they'd let us through, we might have been able to bring them back alive. It all happened so quickly. For Mildred, and for the thousands of villagers of Las Lajas, El Rodeo, San Miguel Los Lotes, Porvenir, El Rancho, and the other humble communities on the skirts of the volcano, life inexorably changed that day. No, no solo fueron mis hijas, fueron mis hijas, mi It wasn't only my daughters. It was my two brothers, my sister, my grandparents, my cousin. 
That Sunday, Mildred lost eight family members. Que no sé qué va a hacer de mí en este entonces porque imagínese ya sin mis hijas. I'm not sure what's going to become of me. Imagine living without my daughters, all of my family. The ones who loved me were the ones who left me. Todas fueron las que me dejaron. It was the same for many of the survivors of the worst natural disaster in Guatemala in years, in those humble villages, so close to the volcano called Fuego. Imagínese que yo el día de ese día en la noche, en la madrugada, a mí me dijeron que tenía que entrar a reconocer los cuerpos de mis hijas a la morgue. Yo entré al ver a mis princesas tiradas, indefensas, todas quemadas. The next morning, they told me I had to go to the morgue to identify the bodies of my daughters. And I went only to see my princesses, them lying defenseless, their bodies all burned. And I asked, why, Lord? Why did my daughters have to die such a painful and awful death? Now, instead of seeing them get their diplomas, they gave me their death certificates. That was so painful for me, really. Like Mildred, those who lived in the mostly poor, vulnerable communities destroyed by the volcano had become accustomed to living with uncertainty. According to academic studies, some three-quarters of the inhabitants of these communities lived in precarious economic conditions. Many were sustenance farmers, working their milpas, a small plot of land planted with corn, beans, and squash, and working on nearby coffee and sugar plantations to supplement their income. Many had come to settle on the skirts of the volcano, as this was one of the few places where they could afford a bit of land. Nearby the communities devastated by the volcano is an upscale golf resort and luxury residence called La Reunión. The golf course and its restaurant were hit hard by the eruption. But in contrast to the situation with the villagers, La Reunión's residents and staff were evacuated before the eruption. While the details of how this happened haven't yet been brought to light, this isn't at all uncommon in a country where the poor and the indigenous, the majority of the population, have been traditionally marginalized, ignored, and discriminated against by elites in power. And so the residents of these volcano communities didn't receive alerts or evacuation orders until it was too late. Consuelo Hernandez was just able to get out. She came running down the road ahead of the lava flow. She told what the Vision Television others weren't so lucky and were probably buried under the flow of lava and debris. Guatemala Seismology and Volcanology Institute had sent a notice to Guatemala's disaster agency at 6 a.m. the day of the eruption. 
That notice warned of the possibility of pyroclastic flows from the volcano. At 11 a.m., the disaster agency tweeted, For the moment, there's no need to undertake evacuation. The first eruption took place at 1.45 that afternoon. The disaster agency gave no clear evacuation order to those living in the villages. Disaster Agency Director Sergio Cabañas says he didn't issue evacuation orders as, quote, the information received from the Volcanology Institute was not clear. Pero por la negligencia de los funcionarios respectivos, no se dio la alarma y no se dio tiempo. In the days following the eruption, opposition Congress members called for the resignation of the disaster agency's director. And protesters came out in front of the presidential palace to demand accountability and the resignation of Guatemala's president, Jimmy Morales. They accused President Morales of appointing inept cronies to head up key government agencies. A few days after the eruption, Guatemala's public ministry, like our Justice Department, announced it would begin an investigation to see if there had been negligence on the part of the authorities leading to an unnecessary loss of life. But several months later, there's still no word as to the result of that investigation. You were just listening to our correspondent Maria Martin talking about the devastating volcano eruption in Guatemala. And you're listening to Making Contact. To listen to any past shows, visit www.radioproject.org. Subscribe to our podcast, get our updates, or support our work at radioproject.org. We're now in the town of San Juan Alotenango, about 10 miles from what they're calling Zona Cero, Zone Zero, the area hardest hit when Fuego erupted. Here, the funeral marches will be heard for months to come. Dozens of those whose bodies have been identified come from this community, which has also become a center for survivors of the devastating volcanic disaster, with three shelters for the thousands left homeless and evacuated. On this Saturday morning, about a week after the eruption, the scene at this shelter was one of chaos, as those in charge wouldn't let aid come in, and evacuees lined up pleading for food and supplies, obviously frustrated. Mashimina, in her 40s, is from the hamlet of Porvenir. She also lost eight family members in the eruption. Now she blames local officials for keeping aid from the victims and the government of President Jimmy Morales for not sounding the alert soon enough. Of course, she says, if there had been an alert, everyone would have left. But as it was, almost everybody is still there, buried. 
La mayoría quedó enterrada. The government of Guatemala allotted the equivalent of some $35 million for relief and reconstruction. But questions have come up regarding whether the funds will be enough for what needs to be a long-term strategy. And whether, as so often happens in this and other countries, emergency funds won't be siphoned off to other uses by corrupt politicians. Right after the eruption, convoys of supplies from neighboring countries had trouble entering the country. Then international aid was accepted. The Guatemalan Congress approved a state of emergency that allowed spending on volcano relief expenses without the usual paperwork. But this led to abuses, such as one community far from the eruption area claiming money for volcano damages, while the bodies and the funerals continue months after the eruption as more remains are found. se solidarizan con las víctimas de la catástrofe del Volcán de Fuego en la aldea del Rodeo y sus alrededores. Nuestros hermanos necesitan tu ayuda. In the midst of the darkness and tragedy, a light shone, in the form of what many call the magnificent generosity of the Guatemalan people, from individuals and families to small and large businesses, in cities and small towns throughout the country, they came to show their generosity and solidarity with the victims of Fuego and with the workers in the relief effort, many of whom were themselves volunteers. Algunas familias se han apostado en la zona cero para brindar víveres a los diferentes cuerpos de socorro this newscaster on the Guatavision TV channel reports on a group of people who traveled to feed the volunteer firemen who worked to rescue survivors and to find bodies in the days following the eruption. TV journalist Alberto Cardona reported nonstop from Ground Zero in the aftermath of the volcano's eruption. He had a close-up view of the generosity of the Guatemalan people in the face of government grandstanding. I spent five days without taking a bath, eating only once a day, a sandwich and some water that people would donate. It was a difficult situation, a situation that makes you cry blood. And why was it such a difficult situation, he asks. Because of dirty and corrupt politicians, people who claimed, quote, we are making donations. But that was false. It was the people who donated, the universities, ordinary citizens, Doña Chonita, Don Juan, Don Carlos, and Don Pedro. Cardona says of all the difficult stories he's covered in his career, this was the hardest, principally because of what he terms politicians showing off in the face of human tragedy. This was the hardest story to cover. And I've covered earthquakes, many catastrophes, and the coup in Honduras, among many others. But this was the most complicated. Here, you didn't know what was going to happen when you placed one foot in front of the other. 
but one had to do it to tell the story of the great crisis people were going through, while the president and the first lady just came through for photo opportunities with dozens of escorts just to do nothing. Thirty-three-year-old Sofia Letona shows us around a makeshift donated warehouse in Guatemala's colonial city of Antigua. We see three rooms stacked to the ceiling with bags of clothes, mountains of toilet paper, boxes of medicine, and other supplies. This magazine editor's life changed on June 3rd of 2018, when Volcán Fuego had its strongest eruption in decades. We had a photography club here in Antigua and would go frequently to take photos of the volcano when it was active. That day we had all planned to get there together, but that never happened. They'd gotten to know people in the communities hit by the eruption during photographic hikes up the volcano. They wanted to help and formed a volunteer effort called Antigua al Rescate, Antigua to the Rescue. Letona was one of its founders. At first, she says, they gathered food and other supplies, then helped out collecting medicine, especially for places which had received no aid. But the people of the communities told them what they really needed was something else. These vulnerable survivors wanted closure, she says. They wanted more than anything to find the remains of loved ones lost to Fuego's fury. In the days following the initial eruption of Fuego, volunteer firemen and other rescue workers searched for survivors and bodies. But after 72 hours, that search was called off. After a public outcry, the Guatemalan government ordered the search back on. But soon, it was again suspended. The spokesperson for the government disaster agency, David de Leon, said that continuing the search and rescue was too risky, that the pyroclastic flows and heavy rains still posed a danger to the hardest-hit areas. Still, many survivors refused to give up, like the young mother Mildred, still looking for the remains of her two brothers, a cousin, and her grandfather. It's a slow agony. Even though you feel they are no longer alive, sometimes you wish you had the power to say, here, they are, to find them and bury their remains in a dignified place. But we can't do that because we don't know where they are. With roads blocked, Mildred and other survivors walked through corn and bean fields to get through their communities and dig through still hot lava and debris. Official figures now say 190 people died and over 200 are missing. But unofficial estimates put the toll for the dead and missing at at least 2,000. (laughs) 
This is when groups like Antigua al Rescate, Antigua to the Rescue, came to help the villagers raise money for bulldozers to search for remains. American volunteer Amy Farrow is a former paramedic from Seattle. Half the time, maybe 80, actually 80% of the time, I'm the most medically trained person on scene. Farrow found herself in Antigua when the eruption took place. She joined up with Antigua al Rescate and has devoted much of the last six months to help villagers find remains. I've never had to dig for a human remains next to the father or next to the daughter. That doesn't happen in the States. They're not allowed inside there. It's too emotional. It's too damaging. Farrow says people were digging without proper protection, in flip-flops and without gloves or masks. So we created a system where they come in every morning and they sign in with us, they get gloves, they get a mask, and this is all donation. This is all donation. The government is not supporting us in any fashion. If anything, they're fighting us. Farrow says the government is reluctantly giving villagers temporary permits to dig, and that so far they've found the remains of at least 200 bodies previously unaccounted for. When Fuego erupted, it also damaged a major highway. National Road 14 was closed for more than two months by the June 3rd eruption. Repairing the road has become a top government priority. In one of the more gruesome discoveries, survivors found human remains mixed in with debris disposed of in plastic bags during the highway cleanup ahead of the road's reopening. Angry villagers demonstrated and blocked the highway, criticizing the government for spending millions on highway reconstruction while ignoring the search for the missing. We want the government to show its face. They promised to continue the search, but didn't do it. And they show no respect. Alfermia Garcia lost 50 family members to the eruption. Volunteer Amy Farrow, who also worked on relief efforts after Katrina, says in both of these disasters, it was the most vulnerable who suffered. The poorest people in the world are who died. And that's how it is in every disaster. And it's tragic and unnecessary. Just a few weeks ago, Mildred Morales greets me in the patio of the elementary school that's been her temporary home, and that of hundreds more volcano survivors for many months. Her sole belongings in this world are packed up in two garbage bags and a donated suitcase. She tells me that if she and the other survivors hadn't been poor, the government would have done more. The truth is, the government has done nothing. And if one of their family members had disappeared in a tragedy, I bet they'd have moved heaven and earth to find them. Instead, they want to make a cemetery of our homes, just because we're humble people. Still, Mildred seems not as depressed as at other times I've spoken with her. Today, she's being taken to another shelter, a newly built compound of small wooden shacks where she'll have a little bit more privacy, though no running water or electricity. She climbs onto a bus while soldiers throw her belongings onto an army truck. 
it's another challenging chapter in Mildred's young life. For her and the thousands of other displaced survivors of Volcan Fuego, many questions remain. What roof will be over their heads in the near and long-term future? Issues have been raised about whether the government's promise to build new houses will be kept. And how will these survivors make it without their small plots of land, now that agriculture in the area has been damaged? Some survivors have already moved to be with family in other parts of the country. Others have tried their luck reaching the United States, even as the volcano continues its periodic eruptions. For Mildred and the many others who live precariously in the shadow of the volcano, the uncertainty continues. For Making Contact, in Antigua, Guatemala, I'm Maria Martin. And that does it for this edition of Making Contact and RadioProject.org. Special thanks to Maria Martin and to our voiceover actors, Josette King, who played Sophia, Diane Livia, playing Affirmia, Mohamed Sheikh, translating Cardona, the journalist, and Charlie Fierro, who played Mildred so incredibly well. The Making Contact team includes Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Sabine Blazin, Dylan Hoyer, and Lisa Rudman. I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.